the banjo was always this center for me. It was, it was the first thing that really gave me an identity. And I never really had good self-confidence, but being good at the banjo gave me an identity. It gave me someone to be. And it gave me someone to be that I liked. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. It's Keith Billick here, enjoying a beautiful fall day up here in Michigan. And speaking of my home state, this is super late notice. But if you are one of my fellow Michigan friends, I'm inviting you to come see me. I'm playing three shows this weekend starting Thursday. That's November 3rd. I will be at the Listening Room. Actually, it's now known as Midtown, apparently, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Friday night at the State Theater in Bay City, and then Saturday at my hometown venue, Otis Supply in Ferndale, Michigan. And that is with my good buddy, uh, Dan Patrick, who is my mandolin podcasting counterpart of the Mandolins and Beer podcast. He has a Tom Petty uh, bluegrass tribute band coming up from South Carolina, and uh, I'm sort of their Michigan-based banjo player for this run of shows. That group is called Broken Skyline, and once again, it's a bluegrass tribute to Tom Petty. So come check it out if you're in the area. Somebody who is definitely not going to be in the area, but is nonetheless a very important listener for the for the Picky Fingers podcast, is Jordan K. Jordan is this episode's very special Patreon supporter of the show. He lives in Paris, where he performs on banjo and bowron, and perhaps best of all, I can uh, personally attest that I have sent at least a couple Picky Fingers shirts over to France for Jordan. So if you happen to be in his area and see somebody walking around with a world-famous Picky Fingers t-shirt, chances are that might be Jordan K. So make sure you say hi to him. And what I'll say to him is thank you, Jordan, for your very generous support of the podcast. To become a Patreon supporter yourself, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You help keep this show running and you also get some cool rewards in exchange. And if you want one of those world famous picky fingers t-shirts like Jordan has, you can head over to the main website, which is banjopodcast.com and order your shirts from there. And all of that goes directly towards paying the bills here at Picky Fingers HQ, keeping the lights on, and once again, keeping the banjo content rolling out. Another item that's available at the website that I have not plugged in quite a while is for about five bucks, you can download both of the full tracks of this Picky Fingers theme music that you're hearing right now, as well as the outro theme music that I recorded a while back. And that will also include the banjo tablature for both pieces of music. So check that out while you're at the website. Once again, that's banjopodcast.com. Or if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. When the dome of heaven starts to fall, there's nothing left to lose this time. Today's featured guest is Gabe Hirschfeld. Gabe attended the prestigious Berklee College of Music, 
and went on to perform and tour and record professionally with his band, the Lonely Heartstring Band, and since then has become somewhat of a of an online banjo guru for all things banjo, but predominantly his vast knowledge of old national finger picks. But he's always posting cool videos of his playing and can always be counted on for a few good laughs and, of course, a lot of banjo knowledge. And he did not hold back on either of those things. As you can see, this episode is about two hours long. And I will say, not only did Gabe talk about banjos for about two hours, this was recorded in the middle of the night at Midwest Banjo Camp. So he was a really good sport after even some, uh, some travel hiccups. So it was really great to finally meet and chat with a guy whose name comes up really often on this podcast. I'm sure you'll, uh, if, if, if you go back and listen, you'll hear it comes up quite regularly and usually in favorable ways, not insulting ways. But anyway, this episode is long enough as it is. I'm going to shut up and let you give a warm picky fingers welcome to Gabe Hirschfeld. I'm Gabe Hirschfeld. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I played piano for six or seven years. I think I started playing when I was five. I really didn't like it. You can't pick it up. You can't take it with you. Right. Um, also, I just like it didn't. The layout of the whole thing is ridiculous. So is this room giving you some weird flashbacks? Yeah, the, this room with all these pianos in it. Um, <laughs> we might have to do this later, <laughs> actually. The, um yeah, so I, I did that for seven years. I never got very good. I never enjoyed practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just kind of, you know, eventually was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, and my teacher, Miss Wolf, was bummed. But uh, it's fine. I used to go over there and instead of getting a piano lesson, I'd just hang out with her dogs. Okay. <laughs> for an hour, you know, so that. So she was bummed that she didn't get you to pay for like some free dog sitting? Basically, okay. yeah. Okay. All right. I'd be so, bummed too. Well, you know, it's. Uh, So when I stopped, my dad did the whole, you know, parent thing of like, well, I never learned a musical instrument. I regret it. So you have to do it. So he's like, I'll give you like two weeks or something like that to decide. So two weeks go by and I hadn't really made any decisions yet. And it's like, I didn't want to play guitar because my brother played guitar. Okay. And so then my dad said, I will decide for you. You're going to play the vibes, the vibraphone. And so you, you didn't like piano because it wasn't portable. And so and said, the next yeah. one up is the vibraphone. Well, I guess he figured it lays out like a piano. But All right. Anyway, he got me a little starter set of vibes, and I just hit one note on it, and he was just, no, we're not <laughs> going to have that in the house. I'll give you another week. So this was before I could drive. So I was 14 or 15. I don't really remember exactly how old I was. But uh, he listened to NPR a lot, and he listened to Car Talk a lot. So in the car driving somewhere and I just heard except Earl plays it something like that yeah and it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks and I think I think for a lot of people the first time they hear Earl Scruggs it's a really profound experience so for me it was so amazing to me that one person could make that sound. And I thought, this is the coolest sound I've ever heard. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe I could do this you know, yeah. all, all these years later. 
I found out just how wrong I was at the time. But <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I got a during good time uh-huh. and open back, and I started taking lessons from my brother's guitar teacher, Bill, and he started teaching me claw hammer. Hmm. I didn't know there were different styles, so I kind of just assumed that if I played it fast enough. Yeah, eventually you'd work your way up. Eventually it would sound like that. (laughs) And then maybe a year went by and I was like, hey, Bill, why doesn't it sound like this? And he he just kind of said like, oh, that's a different style. Uh Uh-oh. Mind blown. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I said, well, I I think I want to play that style. Uh And so I... He gave me a bunch of finger picks. I'm sure we'll talk about gear later. Yeah, of course. But I'll let you know right now, he ruined me by giving me a bunch of old picks. Okay. And so I got used to them real early, but... It was one of these superhero origin stories yeah, that were, that were yeah. unfolding. I put the picks on and immediately my bank account was empty. <laughs> uh, that's my superpower whenever I need a new set of picks. Wait, if if getting the banjo didn't do it, then, I mean, the yeah. picks must have finished you off. Yeah, I mean, this world, it's a cruel one. But uh, anyway. Did anyway. you have much of a bank account as a 15-year-old anyway? No. Okay. No, wow. my it, my bank account consisted most of chocolate yeah. um, and some you know hard candies. Gum but, wrappers and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And the music stores wouldn't take it. So, you know, it was kind of annoying. But anyway, so that's kind of how I got into banjo. Then I started taking lessons from this really great banjo player and mandolin player, Howie Tarnauer. Hmm. I also took lessons from this really great banjo player named Glenn Nelson. And they were kind of my main banjo teachers that I took a bunch of lessons from. Uh, and then after that, I um, I kind of just figured it out, uh, a lot of stuff out on my own. And then also, I guess, at Berkeley, you know, I took lessons with Wes Corbett a lot and yeah. D- Dave Hollander. And a great electric guitarist named Kevin Barry. I took lessons from him. I've taken lessons from so many people. And and this guy, uh, John McGann, who maybe you've heard of, amazing. Sure. He was an amazing teacher, yeah. an amazing musician. Late, great mandolin yeah. player primarily, right? Yeah, just incredible guy and the greatest sense of humor. I remember one class, we were playing over some chords and someone played something really out. And John just went, wow, that sounded avant-garde, as in avant-garde a clue. And I just, I lost, I lost it. I was laughing so hard and no one else. No one <laughs> they, they didn't pick up on no it. No one else seemed to think it was funny, but I appreciated it. But, yeah, uh, good. And then uh, Locke, this great local banjo player, Locke Benson, filled in hmm. for Wes when he was out of town touring. So I've got, filled in at Berkeley teaching class, you mean? Yeah. Okay. So I got, I got a lot of good lessons and I came to, Berkeley had a really good time because they had just gotten a grant uh, to bring in visiting banjo players. So we had like, you know, Bela, Bill Keith, Nome, Allison Brown, Alan oh. Mundy came. Oh, geez. Uh, it was pretty, pretty legendary. Uh, they brought Tony Trishka a bunch of times. Well, I want, man, I, I want to slow down and talk about a lot of this. So I guess suffice to say that in contrast to your experience with the piano, you're your interest and that immediate fascination with the sound of Earl that stayed with you. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it was, as soon as I picked it up, I just could not stop. I mean, there were days where I'd play 12 hours a day, which my parents were very kind to let me do in the house. Um, My dad only told me to stop once. It was when I was learning foggy mountain breakdown Uh and hours and hours and hours just, 
And then I'd go bend that and then slide it up, and I thought it was so slick. <laughs> but uh, but your dad not as much. So well, after about six hours of it, he just came up and he said, "You got to stop." You finally broke him. <laughs> you, yeah, you got to stop. So then a few years later, I picked no. Um, but yeah, so I I I don't know what it is about the banjo. To me, it just it gives me such a profoundly deep emotional response. I don't know what it is about it. It just sounds like a sound you'd hear in nature, which maybe that sounds ridiculous, but you know, like like that. I can imagine, and this is, everyone's going to think I'm crazy, but I could imagine, you know, uh, walking through the woods by a stream or something, and the stream is just kind of making this, you know, and, and the way, I mean, you're looking at me like I'm nuts. No, I, I, and, I know, totally I'd, agree. <laughs> uh, you, you might be nuts, but if, if you are, then it's both of us, because <laughs> I, I, I think I know what you mean. It just yeah. has, there's, there's an element of like, a vocal singing quality to it. There's an element yeah, of, it, of woodiness. There, and, yeah. and it's just got this brilliance to it. And you hit a note, you know, just any note, you know, you know, that note or this note, G, the, just the best note, G. Uh-huh. And it just has this like weird, I don't know how to describe it, ethereal shimmer mm-hmm. and this echo to it that just, I don't know what it is. It just really gets me off. It's, 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 I love it. It's hard to describe. I, I sometimes think of it as a a flintiness, but I don't even know what that means. There's just a character to it that uh, it seems to sing sing to you or something like that. I, I was wondering, as you were telling your story, you've had this profound experience hearing the banjo, like it, it called to you, but do you think that would have happened if you weren't actively keeping your ears open for an instrument to play? that That's a, an interesting question, because uh, I had heard the Car Talk theme song before. Right. But I was always in just in the room with it. I, that time I was in the car with it, and it was a little louder. Maybe that had something to do with it. But I don't know. I feel like I probably would have. And hmm. I guess I knew that I had, I had always liked the sound of it. I was, you know, whenever that came on, I would be like, I like that. I wish that the th- I wish that would go on for longer right. before before they started talking. Not that there's anything wrong with their talking. I love their show, but but it's you know it's not hear, the you know I want to hear the... Earl for a, a little bit longer. And mm-hmm. I, I should mention, up until this point, I thought Flat and Scruggs was like a rock and roll band from the '60s. <laughs> so I really knew nothing, you know, about Blue at Grass. least you knew their name. That that was yeah, more I than guess. I did at, at that age. I think, <laughs> but. Uh, I think that it was probably a mixture of hearing it a little more in a focused setting where mm-hmm. it's surrounding me in a car where, you know, you can't escape. Yeah. And also just, yeah, kind of looking for something and just kind of, I think the realization that like, I've always loved this sound and then just really sitting there and finally focusing on it. And having this profound, really profound experience. I mean, I remember it. Not like it was yesterday. No one. I I remember the feeling. Yeah. You know, that warm sensation in your chest and like your hair stands on end and you get the shivers kind of. I just remember that. And I remember just being transfixed, you know. And, you know, it's a good thing I wasn't driving because I I didn't have a license at the time. Yeah. Um, Well, for for one reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you said you didn't have a very good story. That's an awesome story. I love that. That's cool. Let's talk about, so you, you listed at least half a dozen teachers there. I'd, I would be really curious as to if you go through any of them that you remember this for, but like what kind of things were they teaching you that maybe, maybe, maybe in a similar way to you remember that feeling of seeing Earl, do you still remember things that any of those teachers taught you that are skills that you still use today? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and, you know, there were people, a lot of people I took one-off lessons from too, who really showed me a lot, but yeah, I mean, my first teacher, you know, he taught me claw hammer style Sure. and I still play claw hammer style, although I'm, I'm medi- mediocre at best. Uh-huh. I love it though, but you know, Howie, he taught me kind of more about putting the melody into roles. So I remember the first tune he showed me was Hard Ain't It Hard, which... Which is, I mean, that is such a, you know, profound melody. Mm -hmm. Anyway. (laughs) But, uh, you know, he taught me that you can take that and then you can play it all in forward rolls. But he also showed me that, but if you put this, this lick first or later on, you can go... So he kind of got me going and, you know, taking different roles and figuring out how to fit melodies into those different roles. And also like where you can kind of, I mean, I hate to say this, but so much of banjo, you know, in this style is copy and paste in a way. It just depends on how you're using the specific thing. Yeah. That like modular nature of it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of the really important things to me when I was learning was to really be able to play the melody in, yeah. in the roles. Um, and now I, I mean, now I go way more out, you know, but especially in a song, like if you're kicking it off or if you're playing, you know, a break and it's, if it doesn't call for kind of shredding, <laughs> you yeah. know, then, then it, you know, I like to be able to find weird roles or interesting ways to put the melody in there. What do you mean weird roles? Like, do you, do you have an example of of uh, a weird role uh, uh, being I'm, used to play a straightforward melody? Well, yeah. So, like, rather than going, you could go. That's uh, not that weird, but what that is is thumb index middle index middle index thumb. So, so that's, I mean, it's hard to come up with one on the spot because yeah. I improvise a lot, even when I'm just playing Scruggs style stuff. And one of the things I used to work on, I learned, you know, the forward roll kind of in a weird way and how he had to kind of take me back a little bit because I was adding okay. some notes to it. All right. So I, I thought, well, I never want to get, you know, I never want to mess up a roll again. So I just kind of practiced emphasizing all the different fingers. So what I mean by that is like, I'd take a roll and I'd go like, and then if you emphasize the middle finger, you could go. 
you can do that with the index finger. That's uh, not very interesting. Uh -huh. um, and it doesn't sound like much. Not but, on its own. Yeah. But like when you're playing and you kind of want to do something weird, it kind of, well, when I'm playing, you know, I shouldn't talk about myself in the royal, you know. Yeah. When, when you. Yeah. yeah. When you. When I. But anyway, um, you know, it allows me to kind of change up like the pattern and the order of the fingers in a weird way. And I like doing stuff where I'll kind of like, you know, nail one string a few times in a row and kind of huh. emphasize that. So like, instead of going, I'll go, or, you know, yeah. uh, that's not a good example, but you get what I'm going for. And all, yeah. and all you, all you listeners out there in radio land, you'll get it too. Yeah, it's but, uh, it's a good way of just putting a little bit of your personal stamp on what might be a, a fairly ordinary kickoff or, yeah. or solo break or whatever you're doing. Yeah, and another one actually that I really like, um, one of my old dear friends and mentors who sadly no longer with us, but Mike Kropp. if you've ever heard of him sure one of the best banjo players ever yeah he had a version of this lick where he'd go so kind of like an alternating thumb roll version of but anyway so that's one of those like weirder rolls i'll kind of you know pull out of the the bag okay sometimes uh do you have a it's it's such a weird thing to describe how to do it, but you said one of the main things that uh, was his name Howie. Howie, yeah, taught you was how to put a melody in the role, and in a lot of ways, that's what like bluegrass banjo is is putting melody in a role. Yeah. Uh, do do you have any like general tips for how someone could get better at that? Yeah. Well, so one of the hardest things about this is it's not always going to be apparent that the melody is actually in there, which mm. is yeah, <laughs> just kind of funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing obviously is you figure out what the melody is. Mm -hmm. So you know, or like something better. Um, You know, so the first note is D, so obviously, and then you go, and then, you know, 
So you kind of find the motion of the melody and then figure out what chord shapes are going to fit. And then you put the rolls behind them. And what I like to do, maybe I'm not describing this too well. It's, I've been up a lot. Yeah, we're, we're testing uh, yeah. your, your cognition here. Yeah, Midwest Banjo Camp. I got to the airport yesterday at 4.30 in the morning, everybody. So after various delays and cancellations. Oh, and, there were delays already. Yeah. I'll tell you. <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, so I think, you know, a really good way of doing this, whenever I talk to people about this kind of thing, I always say, first, learn all the roles, mm-hmm. you know, so that you know those roles really well. Because then you can kind of find a melody note like that, and then you can experiment with the rolls. So you, if that's the melody note, you could do a forward roll, you know, a forward backward roll, you know, or any number of things. Yeah. But also listen to a lot of Earl and learn a lot of his licks because a lot of those licks have the melody notes of the bluegrass songs in them, like this. You know. Right. The other thing is if you listen to a lot of Earl and you learn that stuff, then you can just listen to any Earl Scruggs kickoff and you basically know how to play it already. And yeah. this is what I'm, one of my big gripes about tablature. Hmm. You know, I'm not anti-tab. I think tab is a good tool, but I think some people kind of overuse it early on which can be, we can really get in the way of learning those patterns and the roles because this playing style, it's such a pattern-based thing yeah. um, that if you're not actually learning the patterns because you're looking at the tab and you're, instead of reading like, you know, Cripple Creep is like. Right. And you're just reading it. You know, that's kind of like, you're not going to really know what those roles are. That may, maybe that's not the best example of a tune. You, you're seeing it as a stream of single notes rather than sequences of of these yeah. uh, modular pieces that yeah, we're talking about. So, so yeah, it's a sequence of different roles Yeah, all, and, and patterns of left hand licks, you know, put in a sequence. So when I have people who ask me about this type of thing, you know, I say... Learn a bunch of Earl Scruggs stuff, and if you do use tab, take a pencil and kind of put parentheses around each role, and, yeah. and then kind of try to figure out what the role is, because that's going to be the most helpful thing to you, because, you know, then when you're listening to that and you hear, like, um, take me in your lifeboat... in Tennessee. Oh, hey. Right. <laughs> our, our old friend. So uh-huh. you, you already know that. And you know that any song that has that melody motion, you can play that lick over it. You got something there, yeah. Yeah, and another really good way is that, you know, if you just take one string... You know, you can just kind of roll over a forward roll. And in, uh, ca- in case that wasn't obvious to listeners, you're you're playing that melody exclusively on the B string, just yeah, the, playing it yeah, up yeah. and down. And actually, I guess that was the Foggy Mountain roll, so I'm... 
It's flying, man. And that's not the most interesting way of doing it, but like in a pinch, if you you know need to come up with a solo, that'll you know that'll do. And and practicing something doesn't need to be the most interesting. It's just training your brain how to adapt to different options. And yeah, yeah. well, I mean that. Whenever I have students, you know, or teach workshops, mm -hmm. one of the things that is difficult for some people to hear is it takes a lot of really boring practice to get good at these mm -hmm. simple things. A lot of repetitive, you know, just sitting there kind of going. My tuning is all over the place, but, uh, you know, just playing these roles. And playing just simple licks like over and over and over and over and over and over again, you know. If you're not getting your parents to yell at you and tell you to stop, you're not doing it enough. Is well, that kind of the, the oh, gist I mean, of it? I, I, I literally tell <laughs> anyone I give lessons to about this stuff, whoever you live with is going to hate you. <laughs> right. But is it, you know, is it worth it? That's up to you. I can confirm that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. I was fortunate to live in a big house with a bunch of musicians, so I was able to practice without uh, too much of a problem. But, yeah, uh, good. Um, yeah, glad you're still with us, Gabe. <laughs> that was some really valuable stuff that you learned from Howie. What about any of those other teachers, what, whether it was Wes or, you know, I forget the names of the people who you mentioned. Yeah, but... I mean, it's hard to say, you know, what I, what I, it's hard to remember to it's at this point so long ago are there any just general but, concepts like i mean you went yeah you went to berkeley for music are there it, yeah i mean things that you think are still with you that you are using all the time oh yeah definitely i just don't remember what they're called okay. that's the problem i mean i wish i could go and this is the thing i wish i could go back to berkeley now hmm. now that i you know when i went to berkeley as i graduated maybe about 10 years ago now technically i wasn't really there yet I felt like I still had a lot of, well, now I know I had, I mean, back then I'm sure I was a little, you know, dingle, right. but, um, you know, now I just realized there was so much I still had to work on that a lot of that stuff I wasn't ready for. And there's still a lot of ideas that I use and I, I play a lot. I can kind of, I think, trace them back there, but like, it's hard for me to like explain it. Which, yeah. as someone who graduated from Berkeley, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of pathetic in a way. But like, <laughs> you know, and also just in bluegrass, you know, it's hard to flex some of those brain muscles, you know. But, you know, the the biggest thing I got out of Berkeley was the people I got to be around and the people I got to play with. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the most brilliant musicians I've ever met, and, and I mean, you know, now really good friends, you know, mm -hmm. you know, to talk maybe like... I'll come back to Berkeley in a minute, but what I learned from specifically from like some of the other teachers, mm -hmm. Glenn Nelson, I was, I always call my third banjo teacher because my third banjo teacher, I'm very original right. in my <laughs> names here, but he, he started teaching me single string hmm. um, and kind of got me to able to break out of the Scruggs style thing that I was kind of, you know, stuck in. He gave me those strategies, but the the people at Berkeley, they're such brilliant musicians, you know, and I, at the time I really wasn't worthy to be playing with a lot of them, 
but they really pushed me to work on myself and work on just how I interact with musicians. Hmm. I think, you know, like one of the things that I realized at, at Berkeley, which is this, you know, you know this is going to sound stupid. It's like, it's not all about me, you know, and it's, it's really important to listen. You know, and sometimes the most important thing you can do to add to the music is not play or, yeah. or play something simple. But the most important thing is that you're listening to everyone and you're listening to everything that's going on and you're responding to everything that's going on. Hmm. And a John McGann had a great phrase, which is, if you're not listening, you suck. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, uh, it's the simplest, most straightforward way to, to put it. But yeah, so I think I, you know, one of the most important things that I learned while I was there was how to really like listen to other people and work off of that and contribute to that sound or realize I'm not contributing, contributing to this sound at all right now. That's probably a tough thing to um, explain how to do other than just listen and learn how to contribute. But yeah, um, I mean, it's the difference between like doing this and doing this, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes this is all you need. Right, but then the the art the art of listening itself. If you're playing with a group, are you actively thinking like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna get out of my own head. I'm gonna really focus outward. Yeah. Was, was it like that? Well, the, conscious of a thing that you obviously there's a part of myself that had to be thinking. You know, okay, what am I doing next? Right. You know, don't don't mess this up. You're yeah. gonna everyone's gonna laugh at you. <laughs> you know. But uh, that's that's constantly yeah, going I mean, in that's, going in my you know, inner yeah. monologue. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, it's you know, these unhelpful thoughts. But anyway, um, you know, well, some maybe it's helpful to it can be motivating for some people. Yeah. But um, I really try to, you know, be aware of what I'm doing and you know what volume I'm playing. Unfortunately, as a banjo player, we're really you know we are really loud and it's pointed away from us. Mm-hmm. Bad combo. You know, so I, I, I'm very guilty of being too loud very often. But um, when it comes to like filling or coming up with a lick or something uh, or a riff, especially with fills, it's important to hear what everyone else is doing. Yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves, and I'm going to sound like a real jerk, is when I'm playing a gig with someone or I'm in a jam, some either me or someone else starts filling and then someone else starts filling over them and then no one kind of makes eye contact you know to either be like hey get get out of here like yeah or, or uh, okay yeah like we should we got to figure this out you guys yeah. like so, someone yeah and i mean in a jam that's one thing but when you're you know playing a gig you know it's good to be sens- sensitive but um i think that's that's one of the things i really I'm I'm good at not to, you know, shove my head up where the sun don't shine. Um, But I think that's one thing that I'm really good at is kind of listening to what's going on in the band. And there are a lot of ways you can go about that, uh, Mm. developing that skill. But what I kind of did was I would take recordings of not, I mean, not just bluegrass, it could be anything, and try to focus in on one thing, one instrument part. Hmm. And not necessarily like transcribe it or anything, but listen to it and listen to what the part is doing. You know, you'll notice some things in some music that maybe you haven't noticed before. 
you know, a great band for this is the the Police, you know, because yeah, was a guitar player, Andy Summers, is that right? right? Yeah, because he's got, you know, he's always playing like repetitive riffs and stuff, so it's really interesting to dial in on those and kind of hear what he's actually doing and how it's contributing to the music. That's a great example. Yeah. And a lot of my biggest influences are like rock guitarists because they play all these cool riffs and licks. And I think that's just just wonderful. You know, you, you've mentioned and, and given compliments to a lot of the people who you met at Berkeley. I think Berkeley has a reputation for churning out these virtuosic envelope pushing type of musicians. And, mm -hmm. and that's probably deserved. And I've heard you do some really incredible melodic and single string stuff. But for the most part, you stayed as pretty much within our traditional realm of what we would consider. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, how how did you emerge and, and, and maintain that focus on, on more of a traditional approach? I, I guess someone from the outside like me gets this idea that once you go to school there, they're going to turn you into this one thing. And yeah. they apparently did not do that. That's uh, that's for a, you. That's a good question. Or to you. That's a, <laughs> depending on how you look at that's it. A, that, you know, that's a good question. And I, I've actually wondered about that before because so many of my friends just got really into jazz, mm -hmm. you know, and like really difficult music. Right. And I just never enjoyed listening to that stuff that much. I guess I didn't really enjoy playing it that much either. Now, I mean, now I wish I had focused on it some more. Really? Because I feel like I could have gotten a lot more learning a lot of that stuff. But I don't know, when I you know, when I was at Berkeley, I just loved bluegrass and acoustic music so much. It was all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I, I guess what I was getting at is like, I, it's good to know that someone like you who maybe had a little more of a traditional focus than maybe some of your peers, there was still a place for you there and they still oh. encouraged you to do that. Oh, for sure. I mean, Berkeley has a really wonderful roots program. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you don't have to be interested in jazz to go to Berkeley. You know, if you're an old time or a bluegrass person, you know, you can go there and you can focus on what you want to focus on. You're just going to get a lot of other knowledge simultaneously. Yeah. You know, and then you have to take conducting one and two. Oh, yeah, you did? You yeah. had to? That's cool. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I took my conducting one midterm. I thought I was doing okay, but my teacher failed me, so I went to see him after class just to be like, hey, you know, what's going on? And he said, honestly, I don't like you, and I think you're a slacker, and if you don't get 100% on the final, I'm not going to pass you. And I said, okay. That seems unprofessional. Well, 
You haven't been to Berkeley yet, baby. I, I haven't. <laughs> no, anyway. Yeah. Speaking of empty bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, edit that story out. <laughs> or, I don't know. You do you. Do you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction. And at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out the courses they have, and this is just for banjo. You could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each of those courses include high-quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. We, we haven't even talked about like any of your other musical influences beyond Earl, you know, th- throughout this time as you were growing and developing and, and mm-hmm. making the, the sound that is, that is yours now. What do you think were some of your primary influences or, or maybe still are oh tom petty and the heartbreakers for sure all right that's Um, a good one (laughs) oh i mean as far as banjo goes there there are a lot of them i mean obviously earl um Mm -hmm. i loved sonny osborne we're at midwest banjo camp tony trishka and alan Alan mundy are here you know early on tony and alan they're such wonderful humans and they're so funny Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just it means a lot to me to be able to like talk to them and learn from them Right. You know, after having grown up listening to their records, you know, and then, you know, I discovered Bela Fleck, which I think everyone discovers Bela. A lot of people these days are discovering him before Earl Scruggs. 
doing this podcast it's honestly like 50 50 yeah (laughs) and um you know and jens kruger was a really big influence Mm -hmm. on me uh and there you know there were also a ton of local banjo players or not you know northeastern uh there was a guy named ben freed i don't know if you've ever heard of him yeah unbelievable banjo player Did he pass away recently? A few years ago. A few years ago? Yeah. Uh, It was was sudden. It was unexpected. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was just, I mean, talk about people who were really giving. Mm -hmm. He would call me to ask me how I was doing. You know, he he gave me lessons when we had a chance. Um, He gave me his records. You know, whenever I had a question, I I knew I could call him and he'd answer. And he was just such a great guy and influence. And really syncopated roles really interesting style um like all original music too like he would do his own yeah lot of like long compositions yeah and he'd stuff, re- right? he would record his own records in his basement on tape huh um, so that he was a really cool guy um and then there you know there's bruce stockwell um mm. who maybe he, he runs the a camp up there right uh, he and it, his wife? He and Kelly, some... Kelly Stockwell, yeah. They okay. run Banjo Camp North, which we're at Midwest Banjo Camp, so I better be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, Stan's going to come get me, uh, and, and then Ken will f- fire me. But um, no, they they wouldn't dare. No, but, uh, <laughs> we won't let them. But yeah, Bruce, I, re- I mean, I remember the first time I heard Bruce Stockwell play, it was at the Banjo Camp North concert, mm-hmm. and his tone was just so fat and big, and I remember being like, that I would love to get that tone. And I remember turning to my dad and being like, that's a pre-war flathead. It must be. And it wasn't. Uh, it was a okay. ni- it's like a 1990 <laughs> Gibson Granada, which is a really great banjo. But uh see, I was real cocky but, back then. I but thought. you but you still associated that that fact with great tone and, yeah, and however and, however he was getting it. Was... And then uh there was Joe Dietz. Um, who he's a he's a local banjo player. He invented magnetic paint. Very cool guy. Um, All right. But he actually he has the first pre-war Gibson I ever played. It was Ola Bell Reed's old banjo. But, oh wow! So his influence on me, he he ruined me too because you know, yeah we have to, man we have to get like, into a lot of this. He's yeah. like here play this and I'm like oh god okay let let's put a let's yeah, put a pin okay. in that we're definitely coming yeah. back to that. Uh, maybe let's finish up this part of the story. Like, I, I guess I'd want to hear, you know, at the end of this, is there anything particular thing that you identify as being either uniquely your style or maybe a, a playing tip that you use in your playing a lot? I mean, you've already talked about some of mixing up some of those roles. Man. Um, another way I'd like to ask the question is like, if you had a student that, says they want to play exactly like Gabe Hirschfeld, what what type of things would you teach that student as being important to your style? I'd probably try to get them the help that they need. Well, you're in a position to do that <laughs> uh, yeah, now too, yeah. right? Um, it would probably be unethical to, 
to treat my fans. But, some, uh, some kind of conflict, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure I have a style, but I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, I like to, you know, in the Lonely Heartstring Band, which I'm sure we'll get there at some point, but, you know, I was very riff-oriented and very role-oriented. So a lot of my roles, I find, are on the inside strings. So hmm. a lot of time for backup, I'll do stuff like... Maybe that's not really a style playing on the inside strings. Well, it's an approach to playing. Yeah. Uh, was there something? I mean, I, I'm definitely familiar with that band. I have. Uh, did you did you have like one EP and then one full length album? Is that we, how it went? We had an EP that uh, it was the Beatles stuff. Yeah. Good. Good luck finding that, everyone. I think I have it. Lady Madonna, the children at your feet wonder how you managed to make. And then we had two records. We had the first record called Deep Waters, and then we had Smoke and Ashes. And mm. on, you know, Deep Waters, I feel like you know, I listen to that, and I'm like, I, you know, I listen to it, and I'm like, like there's, I play some interesting stuff on it, but I haven't really, I feel like I hadn't really developed my a style yet, mm. and my tone was a little bit thinner. Um, I also hadn't really figured out how to set up my banjo for me back okay. then. I th that. First record was recorded we'll on. Put a pin in that too. Oh, dang! We we're gonna have a lot to talk about. Oh, if that's geez. cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, as far as like my own style goes, I think it's very riff and very roll based. And I think a lot of that comes from you know listening to Greg List. Um, as, you know, when I was younger, play with Crooked Still because he was very roll. He would play a lot of really interesting rhythmic roles, and also right. uh, he he has really great licks. Sliding on the gravelly, traveling avalanches on the smoke in the blue. Cause I'm a mountain jump, when I ride the night. I'm a mountain jump, when I ride the And we lived in the same house together for several years, so I kind of picked up a lot of stuff from him. Okay. And, and is, then, is there like an example to show what you mean about like a, a roll-based and also riff-based uh, approach? So if we're talking about like Lonely Heartstring Band stuff, um, there's our The Tide, which is a, one of our big hits. I'm breaking all these tethered lines, but not driving those new 
did a musical uh, <laughs> a musical video a music video uh where i had a massive pimple on my face and oh boy that was a fun video to do um so all right screenshot that yeah, everybody y'all go on youtube and find my pimple if you can <laughs> um and if you can you win a, a brand new deering banjo just just kidding anyway um so like i took the melody you know, So like it, it's very rolly, but there is like a riff in there that uh, you know that. Yeah. And then in uh, we have another song called "The Other Side." That's more of a riff where I'm just going. And then you know I'll do stuff. That kind of thing, you know, so just like very riffy and rolly. And that's not the same, like, that's not the same as what Greg would do. That's more of like your Andy but, Summers influence coming through yeah. with that stuff. But like, it's definitely, you know, like Greg made me, it was one of the banjo players who made me realize that that's something that banjo players can do. Yeah. You know, these days we just get together and talk about pre-war Gibsons and stuff, which is super fun. But. Well, let's talk about that then. You you had started to talk about the, the first time you got to play Olabel Reed's uh, banjo and how that yeah. ruined you slash changed your life. Let's let's hear the rest of that story and and what it was about that banjo that has has left you in ruins. Well, yeah. So Joe really, you know, I uh, the, this was like the first time I met Joe. I was just I was fifteen or something. R remind me of the full name, Joe. Oh, Joe Dietz. Joe Dietz. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he, he was walking around, I was like young trying to play every banjo I possibly could at the okay. time. Is this like Berkeley era type of? No, this is before that. Oh, wow. I'd probably been playing like a year or maybe two. I was at the Joe Val Bluegrass Festival and I just saw this guy walking around with this old looking banjo. Yeah. And I, you know, I said, excuse me, sir, could I, could I pick on that a little bit? And he said, yeah, yeah, absolutely, sure. And he hands me this thing. And I remember just playing it. And I couldn't really understand fully what it was about it at the time. Hmm. But I just remember being like, oh, man, this is pretty cool. So I said, what is this? And he said, it's a 1930-something uh, RB3 wreath original flathead five string. 
Is an original five original string? Original five strings. So yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things where like you had no idea and you just struck gold on the uh-huh. first, you know, you hit a hole in one on the first, first putt. But, yeah. um, you know, so that banjo haunted my dreams and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, maybe a year or two later, I kind of started reading about these old Gibsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually I got one. It was an archtop TB3 that had been replated gold and refinished. Um, so it wasn't a collector's piece, but I, I loved that thing. Yeah. And it was just like your first dipping your toe into this that was, pre-war world that yeah, you've that been was, reading about. That was my first real good banjo. Uh-huh. And then I my tonal palette increased and I kind of figured out what I was listening for. The thing about those old Gibsons, whether it be you know the pre-war flatheads or the old Gibsons, um, you know, conversions, whether they be a you know, flathead, archtop, or whatever is that they just respond really easily and the the tone is cleaner but fatter in a way. Mm. And they just have this really unique feel. And there's just something, there's a feeling that I get when I play a really good one that can't be replicated by anything new. And so getting to experience that really early on, you know, it was just like, oh boy. Do do you have any idea... What what specific attribute it is? Is it like the fact that the the rim is old? Like, can you get that effect with a conversion neck and a new tone ring? Well, that so that's the interesting thing, you know. And this is a really huge source of argument in of the course. banjo world. Then there's no there's no provable yeah. right answer. But I'm I'm curious and, as to your experience with you it. You know, I mean, it's there are a lot of you know crazy people in the banjo world, as no. we all know, but. Uh, you know, I personally, I feel that the pre, the original flatheads, the good ones, they do have this extra thing, and it's really hard to quantify, mm-hmm. uh, and it's hard to put into words. But it's just this even. It's like an evenness everywhere on the fingerboard. Every note responds exactly the same and has the same evenness to it. And plays really easy, even, I mean, with the new necks, you know, the pot assembly, obviously the old necks, you know, they have a specific thing going on, but Uh there's just like a clarity to it. Hmm. And you can't, you can get that with a really good conversion, you know, like a, whatever the new hip tone rings are, but, uh, you know, I like Blaylock, you know, by Blaylock, but no, I, he doesn't make them anymore. So. So you just, yeah. yeah, bait and switch here. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm kidding. But you know, it's like a good tone ring like that, or Huber. You know, you get it fit right, mm-hmm. and you get a good neck on there. You're gonna have a really good old old banjo. Mm-hmm. It's gonna smell really good too. So, so like if you if you have that old rim and the resonator, I assume you think uh, makes yeah. makes a difference too. Yeah, I think that the the old wood is definitely a huge thing about it, and I would wonder if the reason why the original flathead rings tend to sound the way they do is just because they've been on there for so long mm-hmm. uh, and they've kind of molded on there. Yeah. But I, I don't know. You can't really, you know, there's no way to, to know, <laughs> yes. which is the hard thing. And which is why when people come up to me and it's like, there's no difference, you know, you, you get a recording king or something, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like, I feel it. Yeah. That to me, I, you know, and not to go on a little rant here, but it's the pre-war tone thing. People call it the pre-war tone. I don't think that's the right thing to call it. I think the pre-war feel 
is mm. more accurate. Because to me, it's more about the feeling of playing one of those banjos. It's just, you know, easier. Interesting. Yeah, it's hard hard to describe. That's cool. So, um, I mean, you've become somewhat of a, I don't know if you'd call yourself a, a collector, but you're, you're into this stuff now and you, and you've I'm v- yeah, own, owned a I'm, few and I'm, I'm too into it, too into it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, clearly, clearly you have felt slash heard, heard difference. With yeah. It. And I've, I've been very fortunate to play a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, a lot of really good ones, you know, and a lot of ones that pros have played, I've been very fortunate if if people don't believe there's anything extra about it, that, you know that's fine. Then don't buy one. Yeah, don't yeah. buy one. But uh, you know, me and you know a few other people, to us there is something there, and whether it's just our neuroses or whether mm. it's actually something, you know, that's up to the psychiatrist. Now, at the at the risk of ruining the market for yourself. <laughs> If listeners out there are are curious in in experiencing this, but don't have you know tens and tens of thousands of dollars, is is there a way for them to? Uh, are are there types of banjos out there that people can look for? That's like an easy way to to like get in the game, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, I mean, of course. I mean, like a you know. A- a Gibson TB1 or something from the 30s or TB11, mm-hmm. you can get one of those for a few thousand dollars, you know. Yeah. And the market's kind of all over the place these days, so you can kind of find some good deals now. You know, I mean, and also there are, there are so many great new banjos now too. Yeah. You know, and used banjos too. I mean, you know, you want a really you want a really great banjo, get a Gold Star from the 80s, you know. Or even, I mean, even the new gold tone twanger is pretty good, you know, and the new gold tone mm-hmm. Bela Fleck thing, you know, and, right. you know, Deering and Huber, you know, yeah. Bishline. We're pretty uh, spoiled for that yeah, we, type of stuff. We have more great banjo builders today than ever before. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, if you really want something old, I guess the cheapest way into it would be to find one that has replacement metal hardware and just has the old rim and resonator, uh, which... Then you have to deal with all the people who are like, well, that's not a Gibson. That's, <laughs> that's a parts banjo. And it's like, well, yeah, but it has those important. The most important part. Attributes. Right? It's got the heart of the thing. Yeah. So. That's, that's cool. I don't argue. I don't argue with people anymore. <laughs> Is there one that stands out as, as your favorite that you've played? Oh, my God. <laughs> one or two or three. Yeah, know, I mean. Uh, Bela's is pretty amazing. His 75? Yeah, that's like one of the best banjos ever. The one Mike Munford has that he got from Bill Evans, that 75, that thing is like... Pretty killer. Yeah, I I mean, that thing will send shivers down your spine. And also the the one that I'm, I'm, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but the one that I'm very lucky to have gotten, which was Mike Kropp's old banjo. Okay. uh, That's like... I mean, I, I still, you know, I wake up every morning. And I'm like, I can't believe that's in my house. Yeah. You know. And what is it? Oh, that's a 1931 PB3 mm-hmm. that uh, Mike got that in 1976 or 1977. And that was his baby until, you know, he passed away. Mm-hmm. A few years after he passed away, I, I, you know, I went and looked through his banjos. And, you know, I, I tell people I wrote Janet a letter, but I, <laughs> I wrote her an email basically yeah. being like, this is my bank account. It's nowhere near what you would need, but I won't be offended. If Here you say I am, no. yeah, yeah. And 
you know, it, I was shocked at the answer. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting a little emotional right now, but like, it means a lot to me Yeah, to be able to have that thing. Cause I grew up listening to Mike play it. That's the second one I ever played. And it's also just a really amazing banjo. Yeah. Uh, and whenever I play it, it just really inspires me. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sure that despite not maximizing the profit out of it, Mike would be like thrilled to oh, to know that yeah. it's in your hands and being well, well, loved and appreciated. You know, and, and someday, you know, when I'm gone, my kids will argue over it. Or if I don't like them, you know, I'll, <laughs> someone else will get it. So, yeah, yeah. So, so they better play their cards right. And now we all have very good reasons to be really, really nice to Gabe through through the rest of his life. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I don't have kids yet, but as soon as they're born, that that that's that game is going to start. <laughs> yeah. But uh no, I mean anyway, you know, I'm joking, but like I don't know, I just, that thing just like it means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. I have a I get really sentimental about stuff, which is probably stupid, but like whenever I get to play that, I just remember all my all the good times with Mike, I remember the things he showed me, all yeah. the conversations we had. You know, and then he had a lot of other great banjos and those are in the area too, so yeah. That's cool. But uh Yeah. What is that's the air conditioning. Dang, that's really blasting, huh? Okay. I wonder if there's a way to Oh. Yeah, that's fine. It's like <laughs> The ghost of Mike smiling yeah, on us yeah. or something like that. Yeah, telling me to <laughs> shut up about his dude. Bed, but play my band. Um, anything more to add? I mean, that that's a great story about Mike's banjo. I'm so happy that you yeah no, have something like that. That's really no, cool. I, I would love to hear it in person sometime. Yeah, I'd love to be able to fly with it, you know, and not right. have an, have a panic attack. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you for that. <laughs> but but uh, all I can say is I never thought I'd have one, and I feel very fortunate. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky that that worked out in the way it did and yeah you know, i i owed janet a sandwich or something right but, or a, uh, a few sandwiches you know at least five but yeah you know i'm I'm taking this a little out of order but go, yeah, sure. you know now that i'm thinking about the 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 tone you get and everything like that i've always admired your your note separation and maybe that's because it's something i find myself being unhappy with in my own playing. Do you, do you have anything to say about that aspect of your playing and, and maybe how to improve on something like that? About note separation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's interesting because uh, I, these days I don't think my note separation is that really? good. You know, I mean, like I've, with a really dark and sustainful banjo, I guess there's still some note separation there, mm -hmm. but I think it really comes from just the right hand technique and I mean, right hand technique setup. Th this is one of those, th it's, and this is one of those things where I haven't really thought about it a lot. It just kind of happens. Mm -hmm. So I would think that it comes a lot out of my right hand where ever the motion for picking is very quick and very small. I'm all about economy of motion, um, and no one can really see this right now, but I'll, I'll describe it, you know. I'm kind of, when I think about how I'm hitting the string, I'm kind of just brushing it, I'm tapping it, tapping through it, and it's a very quick motion. Um, and 
you know, if you do that quick motion, the the first part of the note is going to be a bit bigger, and then it's going to die down into like, you know, decay a little quicker. Right. You know, whereas if you're, it's hard to really hard to do yeah. do this, but like drag your pick across the string, yeah. that core note kind of lasts a little bit longer. So it's kind of more snap, you know, a quicker motion. Yeah. And, you know, I also have a little bit of arch in my wrist, which puts the angle that I'm picking a little bit more on the face of the pick. Like, um, you know, it gives me a little more control of, over yeah. how much of the face of the blade uh, I'm hitting with. So I'm, I'm actually, are, are you saying it's it's a you're hitting with a relatively small amount of that face? Like, uh no, I'm hitting. I'm hitting a, all of it. Okay. Across. Like, but I, it, it just happens quickly. Yeah, really quickly. Got I think it. of it as like a piano key, kind of tapping the string okay. a little bit. Um, and what, you you said that wasn't really something you had to specifically work on. You, you no that that was the note separation aspect of it. Just kind of happens from that. Um, yeah. And you know, I mean, we all know that everyone's right hand is different. Sure. Um, and for whatever reason, my right hand just kind of pulls a really mid-rangey tone, okay. as well as a lot of brightness. So I have to set up, we'll talk about setup at some point, but I really have to have a loose setup. Otherwise, I feel like I'm overly bright. I guess another important aspect, I think, of the note separation is I bend my picks up quite a bit, and I'm holding my hand up right now, like, you know, showing the radio. Right. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, so bent, you wouldn't even... You people in Radio Land, you that uh, you you couldn't believe this if you saw it, but I mean it's it's just, not too crazy. It it, yeah. it follows your fingers and it extends, you know, a little yeah, and then just I just a little bit past the tip. Yeah, so. I have a little bit of the blade coming past the tip of my finger, but I find that when I have the pick straighter out, I can't get that as quick a motion, and the tone gets a little more thunky. Okay, if that makes sense, rather than that. Uh, attack sound. yeah okay and you know another another thing you know i think is it, it really depends on the banjo too so like on a mahogany banjo that's set up to do it you're going to get a lot of note separation whereas on a maple banjo you might have a lot more ringing going on hmm. yeah okay. that being said the old granada banjos have an interesting thing where you can like hit a note and it sustains forever but then as soon as you hit the other note that first note dies it disappears down. yeah which crazy is really cool that must be a tone ring thing, like something with the... Maybe, I, I don't know. Bill Evans was the first person to point that out to me, uh, the jazz pianist. And uh, <laughs> no, the banjo player, of course. Sorry, Bill. But uh, I mean, talk about guys early on who were also influences. Bill Evans, sure. amazing influence. Yeah, as far as right-hand technique goes, you know, that's something I've thought about a lot, probably too much. Um, and I have a whole spiel I go on, but you can't really, like, you can't do it over the radio. But basically... What I talk about is kind of showing all the different angles you can place your hand in, uh -huh. you know, and how you can wear your pick, so you can wear your thumb pick, just to create all these different things. So one of the things I talk about is like, you know, you want to be able to kind of, or I think of it, it's like you're holding an imaginary tennis ball between yeah. your palm and the head. Yeah. Um, and you want your palm to be a little bit open. You don't want, you know, I mean, some people can scrunch their fingers inward, but it's really important to be loose. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, early on, I developed a, you know, a hand injury 
because yeah because i was playing 12 hours a day and i was so tense so that really woke me up to you know the fact that i really needed to think about this stuff Mm -hmm. um and so looseness became a key goal of mine and i realized if i'm loose in one hand or rather tight in one hand i'm going to be tight in the other and sometimes the tightness isn't coming from the hands or the arms sometimes it's in the back yeah that's something i have have realized yeah you can then you can feel it spread down if you if you just yeah make make yourself ease up yes so one of the that's one of the key things i was working on you know for a, a while was basically figuring out what position my hand could be in that would be the least tense okay um and also you know how to find the tension and kind of figure out how to release it yeah and that gets harder you know when you're not practicing all the time, you know, like when you're in grad school for two years. <laughs> um, but that's really important to me as being loose and being able to play light, you know, and mm. still get a big tone. Do and you feel like you're a light player? Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I'll play louder than this. But I'm not really playing that hard. I'm kind of just brushing the string. And the interesting thing is that when you're tight, when you're tense Mm -hmm. and you're playing harder, you're actually not going to be louder Hmm. or you can be louder, but you don't want any part of that louder. (laughs) You're the wrong kind of louder. (laughs) Yeah, you're the wrong kind (laughs) of louder. louder. But, um, you know, and I think that, you know, you'll see a lot of banjo players playing who look like they're tight, but they're actually not tight. Hmm. You know, a lot of banjo players can do some weird looking things with their hands, you <laughs> yeah. know. But so, yeah, I think that the kind of the key to getting a big tone is to be able to get loose and to figure out that, you know, that quick kind of motion across the string, mm-hmm. you know, and just play not like as light as you can, but light enough and just figure out how much you need to pick the string to get a big tone out of it. I mean, going back to what you said about how it, it's it's often a, uh, a to our detriment that the banjo is so loud and pointed outward. Yeah. You can let it do the work for you, I, th- I think is a, another way to look oh, at yeah. it. Oh yeah, I mean, big time. Mm-hmm. And I, in my band, you, you know, like we'd be in rehearsal and, you know, Maddie would be like, yeah, which, which honestly, I used to be like, mm. yeah, <laughs> she was right. But, you know, so that, you know, that may, I was thinking a lot more about volume then and trying to bring it down and realizing that this thing is so loud mm-hmm. that you can, you know, you can just kind of brush a string, you know, and it's going to be loud enough. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be the loudest thing in the band. You have a microphone for that. Right. And I guess a jam is a different thing, but you know what? I mean. It's still not usually a problem. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Let's talk about how you got ruined uh, with finger picks by your first teacher. Yeah, he. Uh, I didn't have a set of finger picks when I asked him about three finger style, uh, and so he just handed me a pile of old picks he had in his case that he wasn't using, mm-hmm. and they were all pre USA old nationals, which and, which you know now are which I know now are too expensive for my own good it sounds like he probably didn't realize that either does that seem he he didn't we talked about it though (laughs) we talked about it like a year later (laughs) yeah so i i got really used to these picks Mm -hmm. and then 
you know, whenever I tried to use something else, I just felt so uncomfortable. Hmm. I don't know if it's the old stuff, but the alloy of it, of these picks, and they're called uh, the type of nationalist, it's referred to as an oval eight because the in the patent number the eights are made out of two ovals but there are two there are actually two different types of oval eights there are thicker ones and slightly thinner ones mm-hmm. with softer alloy i like the thinner ones with the softer alloy okay are um, those generally regarded as more sought after no people so- like the thicker ones okay more for whatever reason but for for me these picks like the alloy is kind of soft so you can bend them up really easily yeah um, but they kind of grab the string in an interesting way. Uh, I mean, not like, you know, scratchy or anything, but you, you know, you can feel the pick glide across the string. Interesting. Smoothly, but you can feel it. And the r- response is really quick and instantaneous. And the tone is just a little more complex to me. Uh, and I've tried to get used to other picks, you yeah. know, even some of the nationals from like the seventies. Uh, and I just can't, I can't do it. I won't do it. Yeah, I want to do it, but (laughs) yeah, if you don't, if you don't need to, I I guess uh, stay with what you what you dig. This set's lasted me a long time, Um, and actually, I've been trying to break in another set, but I I'm having difficulty. Work in progress. I mean, there, there. You know, I I talk about all this old stuff, but I think it's really important to mention too that there are plenty of great new options. Uh, I mean, there's Hoffmeyer finger picks, which really, and the main ones are Hoffmeyer, Dotson eights, and Yates eights, and yeah. now Deering has a new Pro Pick Heritage series pick that they're coming out. Which have you uh, tried those? Yeah, the, they sent me some to try out, and I'm I'm not a Pro Pick guy, but right, whatever they're doing with these things, they should keep doing it because I really I I like them a lot. I've heard good things. Too, yeah, they're one. Yeah. Of the, I mean, they're one of the first picks I've been able to like put on my fingers and play with and still feel comfortable. Um, wow. And I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to switch to them yet or anything. When this set fully wears out, I'll cross that bridge, or I'll just be done picking. It's but, it's uh, nice to know that that option's there if you, yeah, if and when you need it to be. Yeah. yeah. And then as for thumb pick, I, I want to mention this thumb pick because I love this thing. I mean, like this is the best thumb pick ever. It's the Dunlop Ultex Large. You know, you know, Ultex. It's the ultimate texture, ultimate tone, and it has to be large. Well, for me, it's got to be large because I got this fat thumb, but it's actually a little bit tight on me, but I like a tight fitting thumb pick. Mm -hmm. But to me, it just like responds so quickly and it doesn't get scratchy. Yeah. But more importantly, every single one of these picks is exactly the same. Okay. And I've had trouble with the Golden Gates where they would just be so inconsistent. Inconsistent. Interesting. in the fit. Um, so I'd find like one in every 10 would fit my thumb. They were either slightly too big, you know, or slightly too small. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. I don't know why that is, but the, the Dunlop Altex large. Mm. Mm, Sound good. Fit good. Oh yeah. Yeah. Predictable. That's cool. I, even if they didn't sound good, I'd use it. Yeah. Just cause it. I mean, that's, that's why I use the one I have. We can talk about that later if we want. (laughs) I mean, you, you'd. You'd be astonished, and, and maybe you even know this, how often your name comes up in the context of, of finger picks that you've either yeah, it's given to somebody or turned them on to Yeah, I, I, I used to give a bunch of sets away to people. I'd be like, oh, have you ever tried Old Nationals? Oh, come on. You got to try the Old Nationals. Uh-huh. They're the best. And then I'd give them away, and then I realized like, oh. <laughs> now I don't have them anymore. Yeah, now I don't have 
nationals for myself anymore. I have I have enough to last me a few years at this point, but uh-huh. I've stopped giving them away. Okay. Um, which you know, people still ask me sometimes, do you, do you have any old nationals? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. No, not and then, me. I, and, then no. and then I wink at them. Never heard of them. And then they back away slowly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I just, I really, I like sharing good stuff. Mm-hmm. When I, when I get to give someone a set of picks, you know, someone who I really respect their playing and, and, you know, I really love their playing to be able to give them a set of picks just to see if they like them. If they don't use them, that's fine with me. But just to be able to give them something that might help them do what they do, that means a lot to me. Just your vote of support for for what they're doing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, it's just like, hey, check this out, pal. Mm-hmm. Come on. <laughs> but uh, gear, you know, gear is really important. And I think a lot of people say like, you know, it's like, oh, it's the right hand that matters. And yeah, it is the right hand that matters. But, you know, certain gear makes the right hand easier. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I mean, I, I think it's a lot of what you, the, the same thing that you said about pre-war banjos. It, yeah. It's, it's a feel as much as it is a sound. So yeah. even if your listener can't tell that you're playing a pre-war from a, a gold tone. Exactly, yeah. The fact that you are feeling something different when you play it is going to come across tangibly or intangibly exa- somehow. Yeah. Exactly. That's the that's like the exact point I try to get across to people who are not believers in the thing. Yeah. Because a lot of these people who aren't believers haven't actually played one. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they've played one that wasn't set up well or that wasn't great. Yeah. It, it's all about the feel you know, when I pick that thing up and I go, you know, and this this is pre-war Gibson, but, you know, when I hit that note, Mike Munford told me he loves them because you hit that third string and it's like a big gong. <laughs> and he's right. You know, you hit that note and there's some, this purity to it. And, you know, it's like, do the oval eight finger picks make it sound better? Maybe not. But to me, the feel of them is what I got used to. So, like, are they better? I I honestly don't know. To me, they're better just because I, when I was 15 or 16, I just started using them. And I got really used to the alloy, the feel of this alloy. Um, and, you know, I, I've used other finger picks. I've used, you know, Sammy Sheeler picks for a little while. And mm-hmm. I used a set of Hoffmeyers for a long time. And they're they're great, but they just don't have the same response it's really hard to describe well it's not i mean from what you from what you did describe about them with the you you said there was a certain just grab to the string yeah it just sounds like maybe there's just that little bit more of a connection between you and the the mechanism to to produce the the tone the tool (laughs) yeah exactly yeah (laughs) gotta connect yeah can we talk about setup a bit? I know you're into that too, and, and yeah, you've, sure. a, a few times you've mentioned about. Um, I forget what you said. You maybe said you you didn't realize how to set the banjo up for yourself yet to get the best yeah. tone. So maybe go through how do you set up the banjo for yourself, and maybe in general, what are some important setup things for people to know? About? Yeah, setup for me. A, a lot of people don't like my banjos because hmm. I I. I set them up really loose and I really like a a very low action. I mean, on the verge of buzzing Uh and it actually, it causes me some problems. 
Okay. With, <laughs> um, with buzzing? Not not necessarily with buzzing, but with kind of clarity and being able to be heard and response. Hmm. You know, I've tried to get used to higher action, but it's just, I don't know why it's really difficult for me, you know, to, to get used to that. Yeah. I've been slowly trying to, you know, raise it. But um, as far as like the setup of my personal banjos, you know, I usually have the head. I don't always tune it, but when I do tap it, usually it's it's usually around like F sharp or G-ish. Oh, wow. Okay. Never much higher than that. Because the banjo just starts to feel tense and tight to me. Yeah. Um, and also, you, I lose some of like I like to play chords like. And uh, uh, for forgive me if anyone can hear my strap uh, rubbing against this chord here, but oh, <laughs> um, I don't think it came through. But but uh, anyway. Um, I just like the sustain and the warm tones. And this is fine for like a couch in your underwear banjo. But, you know, when you're on stage playing through a mic, it can be a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. But I just got so used to the feel of it. And I think that comes from the banjo that I played the most learning was a Robin Smith banjo that had a pretty big mahogany neck on it and a really tall bridge. But also the neck was just set up really high on the pot assembly, like a centimeter higher. Which um, lowered the action that much? Or well, it, more. it had lower action, but also it was just really dark. Okay. Really, really dark. So I got used to that feeling of a loose head mm. uh, early on. So now I'm kind of a little bit, you know, stuck on it. Do you, you, you mentioned that sometimes it's around a G. Do you find you run into problems to, when a head is tuned to G uh, with uh, given no, the resonant frequencies. And... No, I I hear a lot. You know, you'll hear about that. Like people being like, "Well, you don't want to have it tuned to the exact note." Uh -huh. Yeah, but you're not. It's like never, probably not going to be tuned to the exact note. It's going to be a little above or below usually. Uh -huh. But I've never had a problem with certain notes jumping out. Okay. Um, and also, I'll, I'll mention as far as like heads go, I only use the top frosted Remo heads. Okay. Um, I I can't get down with anything anything else the like the, the current production ones are are fine i know people have said they have changed quite yeah, a bit over the years they're a little inconsistent but the ones from yeah. stumac are really good okay uh you'll find some that are really thin uh, and a gold tone sent me one of these new bela models to to check out and uh -huh. it has uh the head that came on it's a really thin remo so i put a stumac remo on it I felt like it helped out a lot. Mm. But again, it's all, you know, it's all personal. You know, some people like a really thick head, like a five-star head. Yeah. Um, but for me, these, you know, top frosted Remos are just thick enough that they give you a fat tone, but they're thin enough that you still get some top edge and clarity, especially, you know, in these like mellower things. You know, I like to do, you know, and as far as like setup, I like my neck pretty straight mm -hmm. with no relief, which is part of the reason why the action's so low and why right. I sometimes have buzzes going on. But for whatever reason, I just don't feel as free when the neck has more relief in it. Huh. I could probably raise the action with a higher bridge or something, but I just kind of get attached to the feel of this thing, Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate, but... 
<laughs> I, I like it and it works for me, so that's fine. And as for the tailpiece, it's set pretty high. I tell people start with it halfway between the head and the top of the bridge, and then you can kind of experiment bringing it up or down. Okay. Um, I use GHS JD Crow Studio strings, which I really love. Yeah. Uh, really light. I mean, it's got a 12 for a third string, but uh, I- And those are the nine and a halves, right? Yeah. For whatever okay. reason, I really like them. And as for bridge, I mean, Silvio Ferretti out in Italy, I mean, his bridges, yeah. you know, they're just such high quality, responsive bridges. Right. And I'll, I'll, if I'm not using one of his bridges, I'm using an old Snuffy Smith. Okay. Um, but usually it's Silvio's stuff because I, I like his bridges and I think he's a great guy too. Yeah, he, he um, absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, going back to, to tailpiece height, what effects do you hear when, when the tailpiece is raised and lowered? When you bring it down, the banjo tone is going to become more focused a little bit. So you're going to have less bigness around each note. Hmm. Um, and it's also going to make the strings feel a little bit tighter mm -hmm. uh, and snappier. Whereas when you bring, and it's going to be a little more bright, uh, but when you bring it up, the notes are going to lose a little bit of that focus, but you're going to have more uh, tone isn't the right word. But body to them. More maybe. body, yeah. Okay. And it'll be a little bit fatter, but then you get a little bit less cut. So there's kind of a happy medium. And I mean, my mine is a little bit higher than halfway. You know, I think one of the most important aspects of setup, which um, I think a lot of people ignore, you know, and you know, we're, we'll go, we're going into it here, but uh, is the, you know, the coordinator rods oh. inside. I think the coordinator rods have a an incredible effect on the tone and the response of a banjo. And, you know, I do setup for people you know yeah and you know people will be like oh my head my banjo is sounding dull or dead so i tightened my head and that didn't fix it yeah you know so i brought my tailpiece down that didn't fix it i tried lighter string gauge that didn't fix it. i used the thinner bridge you know i don't want know what's going on i'd say nine times out of ten it's because that connection of the heel to the rim has just loosened over time oh wow okay you know the these rims are designed on the master tone style banjos yeah designed to be warped in or out, you know, to to change the action. But I don't like doing that. Right. I think it kills the tone. So I like to set it to neutral. The connection I'm talking about is at the heel. So like, you know, for everyone listening, inside the banjo, you have these two rods, and then you have these three nuts. Mm -hmm. A little different anatomy than a, a human male. But <laughs> um, you got these three nuts the lower rod, which is very confusing because when you have the banjo on your lap face down, the bottom rod is on top. Closest to you. Yeah, yeah. So the bottom rod has a nut on either side of the rim and then the top rod has one nut. So if you have those totally loose, the connection I'm talking about is those, the actual rods. So like the lag bolts on in the heel of the neck screwing into the rods. All these listeners here are going to be thrilled with the number of times I'm saying rod and nuts. And nuts, here. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just up my alley, that, that sense of humor, too. But uh, anyway, enough of childishness. But uh, is that even a word? Maybe it is. But anyway, so you screw those lag bolts into those rods. So a question I was always asking is, how tight or loose should those be? Uh -huh. And I found that for a while... Me and, you know, several other people were making them all as tight as we could with our hands and then kind of being done with it. 
And, you know, it can sound good, it can sound fat, but I always felt like my banjo didn't respond that great. And uh, I remember actually with this banjo, teaching at a camp in New York, just mm-hmm. being really frustrated and being like, it just feels like the neck isn't connected to the body of the banjo. So I tightened it up a little bit, and that made a huge difference. So wow. what I tell people is that you make it as tight as you can with your hands, then you sight down you know, the from the tailpiece end to make sure that neck hasn't turned because these are crafty little things right sometimes yeah. they turn uh, and if it did you just kind of turn it back twist it back yeah. and then you use the allen key or the nail you put it through the hole of the tension uh the coordinator rod unless you got the long nut i won't go into that but then you just tighten it up about a quarter of a turn past hand tight okay and so what that's going to do is it's going to give you a nice tight neck connection, heel to rim connection, but it's not going to be so tight that it's muting anything. Yeah, just cinches it up a bit. Yeah. Okay. And so I've noticed with so many banjos I've set up that we're having problems is that's the thing that just cured it. Wow. And they open up, you know, a lot more and the response becomes a lot, you know, greater. Cool. And you know, all banjos are different, so like I do it a little bit more by feel with the banjo. So like if it feels like a quarter of a turn is going to be too much, I might be careful with it. Yeah. Or if it feels like it needs a little bit more, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark Horowitz once described it as turning the rod until you feel that creamy resistance. <laughs> um, this this is just getting yeah, and I, more th- more and more Beavis and oh, hey, hey, that uh, by the moment. His words, not yeah, not mine. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I I really took that to heart. Um, but so the, uh, yeah, the creamy resistance. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, whenever you know, whenever it's the I'm, rally and cry for the coordinator yeah, rod. Army. I mean, whenever I'm having trouble with one of my banjos and I haven't done that in six months or a year, mm-hmm. I usually start there just to give it a reset. Very interesting. Um, and usually that helps a lot. But yeah, again, every banjo is different. Some banjos are a lot moodier than others. And now for all the listeners who have just taken their banjos all apart and messed with the coordinator <laughs> rods and ruined everything, you can pay Gabe to to set it back up for you. And, yeah, but you gotta you gotta drive. You gotta drive to me. Yeah. Come on. Uh, going back to heads briefly, you mentioned yeah, sure. before we started recording that you had wanted to change the, this particular banjo that you have now. Yeah. You had wanted to change the head on it, but you didn't. And I was I was surprised to hear you say that because conventional wisdom, or maybe not conventional, but a lot of people seems to think just leave it on there forever and and let it settle and, and be, and changing yeah. the head often uh, makes the tone take it. A, a step back. So why was it that you said you wanted to have a new head on it? Well, I, cause I feel like this head has kind of died a little bit. Okay. Um, heads can last a really long time, uh, but they can also die if you're constantly tweaking them. Okay. So I experiment a lot. So there are times when I'd be tightening the head, loosening the head, tightening it, loosening it. You know, okay. taking it off and putting it back on. That makes sense. And I think, yeah, just kind of maxed it out. Um, okay. But I do think, a lot, you know, heads do lose elasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it just depends on the banjo, you know. Um, I know some people who are just like, yeah, put it on there, tighten it up. You know, when it loosens, tighten it back up. Just leave it on there for like 30 years. <laughs> 
And, you know, for me right now, this banjo, it feels like it needs a new head because I have to hit a little bit harder than I would like to to get clarity out of it. Okay. Um, and I've tried all, you know, a bunch of the other stuff, you know, aside from tightening the head a little bit. But I already know what that's going to do. And it's, right. it's not a place that I want to visit. Yeah, when when um, you when you get as much experience as you have, sometimes you can tell wh- yeah. where certain sound problems are are originating from. Yeah, and like. you, you know, a lot of people ask me stuff like, "Oh, what what is what does this tailpiece sound like?" You know, uh-huh. like what does a Kirshner tailpiece do? And I, you know, I can describe it to them pretty accurately. You know, st- you know stuff like that. But wow. when you kind of do this a lot, when you set up a lot of banjos, you kind of know what ch- what the changes do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, with this banjo, it's like, I've, you know, like, I think I mentioned earlier, I was in grad school for two years yeah. and you know, this was, you know, this is my, you know, my main touring banjo. I fly with this thing, you know, and I was playing it a lot. And again, like when I'm sitting on the couch, you know, in underpants mode, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, an image for all of you. Um, yeah, I really need to make this a video podcast you know, covered in Dorito crumbs, <laughs> um, you know, uh, cool ranch or nacho cheese. Oh man, it depends on the day of the week. Okay, but uh, you know, um, cool ranch is always a good choice, though. I mean, you know, I'm with you. No, no problems there. But yeah, I mean, it just like this banjo. Like I, I can sit with it and play it like this and be totally fine. But then in a band situation, it gets a little bit difficult to hear. So mm-hmm. uh, that's mainly one of the reasons I'm I want to change the head at some point soon uh I just you know didn't really have the time or energy just because I've you know finished grad school last Friday so I'm kind of like you've been kind of busy yeah I mean I yeah. you know I graduate and then I'm on a plane to Midwest banjo camp it's you know what a what a time um or worse yet not on a plane to Midwest banjo camp and just sitting in the airport for oh yes however long you yes. were doing that yes that was uh Fun. Any other gear preferences to tell us about in terms of like the, I mean, you, you told us about the, the crop banjo and, and you, know, uh, you told us about your bridge and your picks and anything else? I mean, not, not really. I mean, I can tell you about this banjo right here. Oh, well, actually, yes. I like big frets. Huh. I like bigger, taller frets and I like my nut very low. Um, but anyway, this banjo, this is, I've, referred to this a few times this is my touring banjo uh, it's a 2004 Deering Saratoga star and it's a really great banjo mm-hmm. uh, I traded Tony Trishka a few pairs of socks for it oh bargain yes yeah, several years ago well he got the better end of the deal they were you should have seen those socks actually it's it's funny I he played you remember he played with Miley Cyrus I actually had a, a pair of custom socks made for him that had the image of him on stage with Miley Cyrus imprinted on the socks. Wait, are we serious now? Yeah, I'm, I'm dead serious. I don't know if I knew that he did that. Was that at some awards show? Oh, you or don't something? remember that? I must I must have heard about it, but... Man, where have you been? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, this banjo, obviously, you know, Tony's a, a good friend and a hero, you know? Yeah. So it means a lot to me to play this, but I also just really love this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the neck is really huge. So it has this really warm mellow thing going on um but i just love the feel of it i like the radius fingerboard banjos too yeah i mean i've i've toured with this banjo probably more than anything and i really i really love it 
Yeah, it's a great instrument. Um, and in a way, I mean, in a way, I feel more comfortable on this thing than on Mike's old banjo, just because I'm so familiar with it. And the great thing about this banjo is it's not very moody, so it doesn't matter where I go. It always feels the same. Oh, yeah. So that's really great. Yeah. And it's also just really even, you know, from here all the way up the neck. I really love it. Which is something, again, that you like about the best pre-wars, so... Yeah. It's an element of that that you found. But yeah, I mean, it's just such a... It really does what I like in a banjo. Like, if I were playing super traditional bluegrass, it might be a little bit tough to pull off that stuff on Mm -hmm. it. But, I mean, for everything I was doing with the Lonely Heartstring Band, you know, it was really kind of perfect. Yeah, cool. Plus, the neck is so big that, you know, if you ever have to gate check it, you know. They couldn't break it. It wouldn't be possible. <laughs> and when I say now that, you're, you're really tempting. Yeah, fate I now. say I say that I'm yeah. gonna fly home and just, they're uh, gonna destroy it. Fingers crossed. Do you want to answer any of these ridiculous Facebook questions? Oh boy, yeah, sure. Oh brother. <laughs> Everyone took this very seriously. Oh yeah. Well, you know me, I'm a ser- I'm a serious guy. So, d- give us a real quick you've referred to grad school. What what is the exact uh degree or certification that you've just achieved? So, I went I went to school at U- uh, UMass Boston to get a degree in mental health counseling, a master's. So, I'm a master now. Man. Um cuz a, yeah. a, a lot of these questions uh, I I will just sort of uh <laughs> aggregate them into some sort of people wondering how what you've learned about uh, mental health conditions has <laughs> has changed your view of banjo players or or maybe informed your view of banjo players. I'll tell you that the people I met at my internship and worked with, uh-huh. they're nothing compared to the nuts we meet here at banjo camp. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The nuts, and, and the, the nuts and the ro- and, and the, the rods nuts and the rods. The, yeah. no, no, I'm kidding. Of course. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Like, what what has this? What has that experience done for my banjo playing? Aside from making my chops worse, right? I've been practicing. Um, yeah, I think it's made me more comfortable with what I am as a what I am as a player, who I am as a player, and what I can and what I can't do. Hmm. Um, cause I used to get caught up on like, oh, I can't do this. Like that's rough and I don't have time to do it right now. And they're all unhelpful thoughts. And I, you know, I have a uni- unique style. I have a unique sound that I'm happy with. I, you know, I think I sound good at least for now. I do too. Uh, oh, well, well yeah. thank you for, for now. Yeah. We'll see what you think tomorrow. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that it just made me realize that there are some thoughts that aren't really helpful and a lot the thoughts that are really negative about my own playing, you know, aren't necessarily helpful. And there are thoughts that aren't like, like when I'm like, Oh, my timing's not so good right now. You know, that's a help. That's a helpful thought. Cause it's like, that's something to work on. It's like an actionable yeah, but, thing. But when it's something like, Oh, I didn't really nail that. And everyone knows and everyone's looking at me and uh-huh. I'm in my underpants, you know, covered in pizza grease at Midwest Banjo Camp. You know, that's not a helpful thought. But actually, it's interesting. Someone, you know, I was teaching a workshop um, earlier today, and this is something that I actually thought of. It's like, what what has that 
kind of this experience made me realize about like teaching the banjo. Mm. And it made me realize that everything should be done in baby steps. One of the problems, you know, with you know, with people, especially with like depression, is people try to change too much too quickly. And when you change too much too quickly, you're kind of destined to fail because it's just too much. Mm. I mean, some people can do it, but sometimes it helps to just make these little changes and know that, well, it's not going to make you feel good immediately in the long run. You're going towards your goal and eventually you're going to feel better. When it comes to learning the banjo, <laughs> um, there are all these little details that you need to work on uh-huh. that you need to break down. They're not going to necessarily be fun. It's going to require a lot of... For hours, you know. Yeah. But once you put together all these tiny things it's going to create a better player and a more solid player and someone who understands the instrument a lot better. So that, does that make sense? Yeah. That's a, that's a much more sophisticated answer than I guess I uh, expected. That's really cool. I like it. But you know, it it was an amazing experience too. It's weird because my experience as a professional musician kind of prepared me for it because I've met a lot of people and in the bluegrass world, you meet a lot of really interesting people i'm sure you know yeah um people like me yeah um and you know you just kind of learn how to talk to people and you learn how to listen to people and you learn how to respond to people and i really that whole thing came into play a lot you know especially my internship i bet you know it wasn't like oh you know gabe i'm so depressed this week and i'm like well, are your strings shot? You know, <laughs> did you try that Silvio Ferretti bridge? Because I'm telling Works you. Works for me. You yeah. know, but yeah, anyway, the whole experience has made me a more centered person, which is, is interesting because the program was really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in a way, I had to become more centered because, you know, you're reading hundreds of pages a week. You're constantly working. My yeah. My internship was an hour away. You know, and oh, I had to wow. be there early in the morning. And, you know, while I'm, you know, while I'm used to being in the car for long periods of time, you know, when on tour, you know, it gets old after a while. But it's intense and there's not really a way to half-ass it and expect yeah. to do well. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, yeah, the short answer to that whole question is that I just think I'm a, I'm a more interesting player. I'm more myself now than I've ever been before. Um, for better or for worse. Yeah. You know, I don't sweat being super clean all the time anymore. With your playing or just physically? Well, I do need to take a shower, (laughs) clearly. No, with my playing, you know, Uh sometimes it's cool to not be super clean, Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know. I just don't worry about the stuff I used to worry about anymore. And I guess, you know, when you're not doing the professional musician thing full time, you don't actually have to worry about it quite as much. Mm-hmm. But it's made me appreciate the banjo a lot more too for what it really does for me and for what it did to me before I was a professional musician. Because the banjo was always this cent this center for me. It was it was the first thing that really gave me an identity. Because you know I you know I grew up a socially awkward, you know, physically deformed kid from you know the Boston area. You know, and it's a a weird experience, and I never really had good self-confidence, but being good at the banjo gave me 
an identity. It gave me someone to be. And it gave me someone to be that I liked. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, rediscovering that after all these years, not that I I had forgotten that on the road, but you kind of take that for granted when you're just doing it, when you can do it every day. Right, yeah. Yeah. And and so it was by necessity de- deprived from you. Or yeah, I didn't and, say that right, but yeah, you were you yeah. were deprived a little bit. And you know, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly lucky to have had the to be able to have played in the band I played in to and to be able to have the experiences that I've had to go to the places I've gone. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And just to make music that I enjoyed that was interesting. Right. It was a really incredible, pro, you know, I've used the word profound a lot, but it was a very, it's it's very, I realize how profound it is. I realize how lucky professional musicians can be, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes people just have to kind of be anchored to where they are yeah. and do their job and then they'll go for a vacation occasionally. But I got to go do all this stuff and get paid for it. And it wasn't always fun. You know, people don't realize it's not a vacation. It's hard work, right? (laughs) you know, and you know, especially people get grouchy after being on the road for a few weeks, you know, Uh it can be difficult, but you know, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Right. You know, I mean, the people I've met, the people I've gotten to play music with, the people I've gotten to play for the really bizarre places I've gotten to play. It's just a really, it's been a really wild ride. Yeah, it's a it's a storybook, you know. It's, yeah, it's... and also to be able to contribute to really interesting original music mm-hmm. was important to me too. Yeah, someday I'll write a book and no one will buy it, <laughs> and then when I die, my kids can throw it out if it's available on ebook, you know, or or audiobook. Let's do an <laughs> audiobook. We can do that. <laughs> Okay, let's see what other. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're on these Facebook these questions, Facebook yeah. questions. Oh my god, someone wants more banjo stuff reviews. Oh, from ban- you. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not as easy when I have to buy <laughs> buy the stuff, but uh, I do like doing that. So yeah, if anyone has, I mean, if anyone has anything that they want me to review, you can get you get at buy me one and send it to you. Well, yeah, but you could also just get at me on Facebook if it's something that's not too expensive. I'd I'd review it, and yeah, this is another issue with me. I'm I'm too honest <laughs> with uh, with stuff. Why is that an issue? Well, because people send me something to try out, and I'll be like, "Oh, I don't like this," you know, and it's that's fair. Oh, it's fair. But, I mean, <laughs> but it's not good. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, warm up to do? My favorite warm up to mm. do, jeez. <laughs> do, do you have a do you have a routine for that? If you... I do, you know, I don't really have a routine. Usually, it's just rolling. You know, playing patterns. You know, stuff like that. Or going. You know, uh, I use a lot of sixths. So like. Going up and down those patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are any for gigs and stuff, if there are any patterns that I need to really nail, you know, like, like there, for a s- specific song that you're going to play, you mean? Yeah. So, like, there's, um, I haven't played any of this stuff in years, like a few years at this point, but like, uh, 
you know, and we had a song called The Road Salvation, you know, and so like my solo, you know, you know, I practiced that. Um, I have this, this line. That's it. But, you know, licks like that. Just little that, tricky bits. Yeah, um, tricky bits where I'm going to have to step up to the microphone, and if I mess it up, everyone in the audience yeah. is going to laugh it's at gonna me. It's going to be loud, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, yeah. and then it's just going to be upsetting for everyone. And all this self-confidence um, that you've found recently is just yeah. going to, you're going to be set back years. But yeah, I mean, mostly just loosening up my hands with rolls is, that's the way. Right on. I guess related to that, do you have a, typical practice routine no not anymore but uh back back like a few years ago i would just play along with the band's records playing along with records was my main thing do you have any go-to's that are your jams uh well my bands for obvious reasons because mm. i gotta know I, well i had to know that material yeah otherwise it wouldn't be very helpful for them <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, all the Bluegrass Album Band stuff, Bailiflex Drive, I learned some of those years ago um, and would play along with those. Skip, Hop, and Wobble. Oh, wow. I had some tracks that I'd play along with. Um, Which doesn't have a banjo, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, just, just a, that way. Yeah. A, a, anything, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'd even play along to stuff that wasn't Bluegrass and it wouldn't sound very good, but it was fine. Yeah. For learning. And probably the most uh, interesting question here. How did you get so damn handsome? Oh, yeah. I know that guy. Uh, well, it was just hard work. Well, he clearly has good good taste in, uh, you know, evaluating appearances. Hard work and a lot of omega-3. Ooh. Yeah. Those fatty acids. Oh, you got to get those fatty acids all over your face. <laughs> and you don't, you know, that's the thing. People, people eat them. You're not supposed to eat them. You're supposed to crush them and throw them at yourself. There you have it. That's, yeah. that's the secret. Oh, that's the secret. Well, that might be a good time to uh, <laughs> to, to finally mercifully let you let you go here. Is there a way for people to find your your music and track you down online? Oh, yeah, not really. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so since I'm working as or was working as a counselor and presumably am going to work as a counselor in the future. Um, I've had to set my Instagram and my Facebook to private, but I do still post a lot of banjo videos and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can find me on there. You can friend request me. I have hundreds of friend requests right now from over the years that I just haven't accepted because I don't know who the people are. Right. But you know, if you're a banjo person, I'll usually accept it or you can even send me a note that's just like hey i want to see your stuff let me in it happens to me too yeah typically if you if you even if it's temporarily change your profile pick to be you holding a banjo and it'll yeah, be a little more obvious yeah it's me um and then uh instagram the same thing but anyone can follow me there um uh, I'm on Banjo Hangout. That I don't post very much on Banjo Hangout anymore because everything is an argument. Like, if anyone needs to get in touch with me, those are the three places to do it. Um, I don't have a website. I probably 
should at some point. And as for music, I was in the Lonely Heartstring Band. We have two studio records, Deep Waters and Smoke and Ashes. I really do want to do a solo record soon because I've been writing a lot of original material. Um, Those two that you played tonight were were beautiful. So I would, oh, I would thank you. Yeah, highly I, encourage you to to yeah and pursue that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I've been meaning. I mean, I've been meaning to do it for years, but I never had enough material. But at this point, I feel like I have enough tunes. You know that I'd I'd like to do it before I retire. Yeah. So I'm gonna do that. So once that's out, awesome. Then people can listen. I'm happy to, to that. hear that. Cool. Yeah. All right, Gabe. Well, thank you so much for being really generous with your time. I know it's we caught you at the end of a long day, so I, I appreciate all of it. Oh, man, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Even if my eyes are heavy and my throat is raspy. It's but, that, uh, those sultry, sultry tones of Gabe Hirschfeld. Yeah, my, uh, my 9 a.m. class tomorrow on tone color is going to be... Let's not talk about it's, that. Well, it's gonna it's gonna be a heck of a thing, I tell you. Yeah, be there. <laughs> All right, thanks, Gabe. Anytime. And there you have it, folks. You've made it to the end of the interview with Gabe Hirschfeld. The sound clips you heard in this episode were "The Other Side" by the Lonely Heartstring Band. Winterhawk by Northern Lights, Synchronicity 2 by The Police, Cruise Control by Ben Freed, Lady Madonna by The Lonely Heartstring Band, Mountain Jumper by Crooked Still, and then finally The Tide by The Lonely Heartstring Band. Thank you once again to Jordan K. He is today's Patreon supporter of this episode. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself, or email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Hope you're all having a lovely fall, and I look forward to seeing you all next time. <laughs>